0: You got to contribute at the same time. So you're not take, take, taking, but you got to move forward. And sometimes that means moving sideways before you move forward. And there's a lesson here too, because I can tell you, I've done that several times. You're investing in yourself and you're giving back at the same time. It's a great combination. If you have a long-term strategy, you know, then it really helps you to have that vision, that end goal.
1: welcome to another episode of the hospitality mentor podcast today i'm very excited to have thatcher brown here and i need to get a breath ready to get his title in thatcher is the chief commercial officer and head of joint yacht operations at mark henry cruise holdings owner and joint operator of four seasons yachts thatcher how did i do
0: I think, I think you did really well. It's, it's, it's funny. It is a mouthful and it, it certainly doesn't pass the grandmother test when you try and explain it to, to her, but you know, it's, it's one of those manifestations as you start, as you start an enterprise, it, it oftentimes starts with, I would just say the, all the legal agreements and details of the entities, and then you kind of absorb them into your title as as gracefully as possible. But essentially, yes, my job is to drive the sales and, and marketing and the go-to market planning of, of, the new Four Seasons Yacht Enterprise. So I think you did really well and appreciate that.
1: We're off to a good start. And I'm excited to get to that towards the end of the conversation, but I'm excited to talk about your journey. And like we always do here, Thatcher, what was your first job in hospitality?
0: I think it was when I was about 16 years old. I was in New York City and I saw that there were some courses being taught in the restaurant school within the new school, which is a college and in New York City. And, and I applied to take the courses at restaurant school at night, and there were basic courses in different traditional and non-traditional kind of cooking techniques. And in exchange for taking the courses, I offered to work during the day. So I would work during the day in their stewarding department, putting together all the provisions for their school and all the other classes during the day. And at night, that would pay for my classes at night. And so that was my first job. It was sort of a bit of a, an exchange. So I didn't have to pay tuition. And so during the week, I, I would study traditional French culinary techniques. And I started to e- explore my, my passion for food and beverage and it was a great way to sort of put my toe in the water in terms of my my hospitality career. So I studied different courses in 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 culinary and it it turned out to really pique my interest. So that's when I started. I had some great professors at the school, and I also learned a lot about stewarding and provisioning as well. So it, it turned out to be a great exchange.
1: Wow. So you're doing that all at 16 years old?
0: Yeah, I remember I had to get a work permit in fact, I believe, and and that was that was really exciting. And you know, when you're young and enthusiastic and you know, I remember working during the day, coming home, having a nap and then going to school at night. And you know, at that time actually my parents were going back to school for their MBA degrees. And so all the kids actually had to to cook one meal a week for the family and so that was another part of my it wasn't a it wasn't really a job my first job in hospitality but it also introduced me to sort of cooking for the family and enjoying that as well so i could bring what i learned at school back home and it was it was a great combination so i could get a real appreciation for what it was like to kind of go to work and then Come home and then also have to cook a dinner for my brother and sister and mom and dad. And of course, we got very clever after a certain point because we would make a, a big bunch of shepherd's pie and we would freeze it so that we wouldn't have to make it every week. But, you know, in any case, that was the beginning.
1: Well, it's like, like an interesting high school. So it's not a traditional high school where you have social studies and math and science. It was a trade job kind of high school? That was that, during was?
0: the summer, actually. Oh, the summer. Got yeah, it. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was my first summer job. But I then I graduated from high school and I was waitlisted into a university. And it was one that I would really wanted to go to. And I thought, well, maybe if I took a year off and grew up a little bit, I would... Suggest to the university, it was Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut, that I could perhaps be matriculated into the following year. And so there was an opportunity to take a gap year. And so that was when I really had my first first hospitality job, where I was a, an apprentice, a stage on board a cruise line, a cruise ship called the Royal Viking Sea. And I was 18 years old, and I remember really walking up the gangway in New York City on Pier 39 with my suitcase waving goodbye to my parents. And then I had my first contract there for six months, seven days, and four hours. Uh, (laughs) And I had different roles, so I was assigned to different areas. So I was in the dining room first uh, as a a waiter, and this was a a five-star vessel the Royal Viking Sea. She was beautiful. And then I was a deck steward and then I was a bar waiter. So I rotated around as, as an apprentice and I traveled around the world. And that's a that's a whole nother story. So that was really my first adventure and longer term employment. And so
1: were your parents supportive of that or they're like, Thatcher, we well, need to go to I don't think they school. really knew What's what I was doing. <laughs>
0: I don't even know what I was getting into, you know, and our first series of, of cruises was the uh, New England and I came back to New York after doing a bunch of runs up the St. Lawrence and going to Quebec and Montreal. It's a beautiful area to to visit, particularly in the fall because I as I mentioned, I walked up the gangway in, in September and then I came back and I think I had lost like 15 pounds running around as a waiter. You could see right away that, you know, I, I didn't really have any formal training and I, I received, you know, they gave me a, a partner. You worked in partners and I had this wonderful partner named Pepe. I'll never forget him. And he was super helpful. And he, he really taught me. He went to a hotel school in, in Austria and he probably looked at me and said, what did I do wrong to get this kid as my partner? But the good news was the, the, the clientele was from the United States. And I at least could, the language wise, I could handle it. And, and there were some things that were easier for me. And he taught me how to be a waiter. And so my, when I saw my parents getting back to your question in New York, just they visited the vessel. I think they began to worry and go, oh my God, this is a real job, you know? And Of course, then we we left. It was just for the day that they saw me. And then we left to go to our next deployment in the winter, which would be the Caribbean through the Panama Canal back and forth a few times. And that was fascinating too, because while I was on board and I was working, you would always be exposed to wonderful and interesting guests serving them. But also, there was a lot of enrichment series and things like that. And so You would hear the stories of speakers like who wrote books on the destinations or astrologists. I know we had Carl Sagan on board or, you know, I think it was, was it Walter Leferber, Path Between the Seas? He wrote that book. And so you also started to really connect with these destinations, even though you were working. And it was, it really stimulated, again, my passion. And then I went on a world cruise, you know, the ship was redeployed for a world cruise and... Boy that was fascinating and it was hard work. You worked 7 days a week, you know, many hours a day and I was uh, I was learning and traveling and it was it was everything. You didn't really have the connectivity that you had today, so you would be writing letters or mm-hmm. when you went to a destination you would be reading a, a guidebook. It was a lot of fun and it, And that it was taught. all during
1: your gap year or was it Yeah, that like that was you know? the
0: first half of the gap year and wow, I, I never amazing. forget I, I got off in Hong Kong in April, I think.
1: And you're 18 years old, so I want to set the scene here. This is 18-year-old Thatcher traveling the world on a cruise, never having worked on one, right? And I know back at House, as an 18-year-old, you're dealing with grown people for probably the first maybe time, truly, right? All in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s working there. What was that like? Was that eye-opening? Because now all of a sudden you're friends with people who are true adults, because you're still a kid at
0: that time. Well, you know, there. I think the truth, these adults, as you know, in back of the house, they're, they're no kid gloves, you know, and, right. and when you're serving a Dover mm-hmm. sole and you're filling a table side and, you know, you're lined up with all your other waiters and they also mm-hmm. want to get their Dover sole out or their, you know, consomme, depending where they are in the service sequence, you know, you really have to be on your your toes, and uh, you miss a beat. You you got to go to the back of the line, you know. And then we had about maximum about twenty guests per station, and with tableside service, it's quite fatiguing. And so, you know, I'll never forget the you know the head chef and just being absolutely terrified of doing anything wrong and not being there when when he was saying, "Okay, your order's up," and of course, he couldn't understand the accent sometimes. And if you made a mistake, you would definitely know it. And everybody else would know it in the kitchen. And it was sort of a, a very intimidating experience to say the least, or in those days. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. It was a huge amount of pressure. And of course, in those days, you were compensated a lot in terms of the gratuities that were kind of quietly understood as being a possibility. It wasn't heavily pushed. But, you know, if you're a partner, you were working with a waiter and your partner wasn't seeing you perform and he was suffering financially there's a whole world of pressure there on you because you guys wanted to optimize as partners your your income and mm-hmm. for me it was a nice gap year off and i needed the money and i i could save it and everything like that and for many it was getting that money and sending it home to their families you know i did i just had to take care of myself and so you you started to realize the the economics of these these positions and the pressure that's on and you're absolutely right it, it was really something or or the disappointment of when you have to uh, you have a shift and it's at five in the morning and your partner doesn't show up and you're setting up a you know a morning breakfast and you know and you're doing it by yourself and so you start to learn these lessons of of making and meeting commitments and being responsible yeah but, especially in a
1: five star setting right off the bat that is but truly challenging versus some of the cruises that people know these days. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think there were, there were days where you would, and I think many of my peers who've done this in, in their lives would understand this and, is where you would be in your, your crew cabin and you would you would wake up and you would put on your maroon uniform and you'd go upstairs and the entire your entire peer group was wearing the white uniform because it was breakfast and it wasn't <laughs> dinner. And you were wearing your dinner uniform because you completely forgot what time of day it was because you were on an inside cabin and you couldn't see the light outside. So <laughs> there was a lot going on for a young 18-year-old. But I think combining this sort of work environment with something that you're passionate about is really important as you as you start to pick your career as you you find something that you really truly enjoy you can make a living but you you feel good about how you're expressing yourself and what it has to offer you and you know I think the hospitality industry kind of gives you a lot of fortitude because it it exposes you to opportunities to be to improvise, to solve problems, to look at the world differently and and take in a lot of, you know, languages and 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 perhaps build this sort of repertoire of resourcefulness and kind of adventuresome spirit that gives you the courage to maybe do things you wouldn't normally do if you hadn't been exposed to it.
1: No, I love hearing that. And so you do this during that gap year and then what happens after that do you go back to
0: school gosh i went back to school like i i, I was accepted into university and I, I i majored in in latin american studies and anthropology and languages because i thought well if i'm not you know i'm going to a liberal arts school but i want to stay connected with culture and mm-hmm. language and i really was fascinated with latin america at the time so i i studied that for two years and then my father said to me you know Hey, Thatch, do you want to come to a seminar with me uh, that's being given up in New England? And I said, Well, what's the seminar about? He said, Well, the seminar is called like 10 reasons why not to buy an in. And <laughs> <laughs> and so it was for all these, these these kind of people who were going through their midlife kind of questioning and saying, you know, maybe I'm I'm gonna move from this occupation to this occupation, and there's this fantasy that you want to buy an inn you know or running in new england and um
1: yeah bed and breakfast and yeah, like movies yeah
0: exactly like you know maybe like faulty towers or something i don't know mm-hmm. but so i said Dad, you know sure thanks you know i'd love to come so i went with him and i went through this weekend seminar and sure enough they ended up buying an inn in vermont it was in dorset vermont it was called the barrows house right outside of manchester southern vermont in that area and at that time too, I had taken all the courses I could take in Latin American studies at Wesleyan, and I had kind of exhausted that path. And I said, well, you know, apply to hotel school, at Cornell. And I hadn't gotten into Cornell the first time, and in fact, I think I applied again quickly, and I didn't get into the hotel school either. So I was rejected, I think, twice from Cornell, actually. And waitlisted it was you know, and, and so I was thinking, okay, well, maybe if I get some more that this experience, I can transfer now into Cornell. So third time's the charm. And for those that are listening about persistence, I have to say, you know, when somebody says no to you, it's an opportunity to turn it into a yes. And with my desire as I went into the path of hospitality and my desire to go to hotel school and I had picked one that I, I thought was excellent. And I didn't get in. I tried again and then I tried again and I I got in. So I transferred from Wesleyan. My parents had were simultaneously buying it an in. And I went after two years at Wesleyan to Cornell to their hotel school. And then I took three years at Cornell. To finish my degree. And it was wonderful to ha- be able to go home and have this laboratory. That was the beginning of eight years of owning an inn. And then my education at, at hotel school, which was amazing. So it was a lot of fun, Steve. That's
1: amazing. So you got to learn everything and then apply it to your family business. During
0: well, that's time up, or your parents
1: not wanting to listen to you They're like, no, we got this.
0: Well, they were really open to, you know, they, all the kids, there were three of us, all of us had a role and a responsibility. You know, I was in the kitchen. I, you know, trained as a sous chef at that time during, you know, over the eight years, I worked a lot in the kitchens and whether it was a weekend or a summer as I got older, but my brother was sort of the grounds and, you know, we had seven acres and we had something like six buildings, you know, different little buildings and my sister was kind of front of the house. So we all did have a role and it was really interesting. And we were all shareholders as well. And we were small, teeny little shareholders of a teeny little in Vermont, but it teaches you the perspective of being a proprietor and owner. And Steve, you know, you've been in this business and you talk about asset management and owners and meeting with owners and you know the first time i ever was an owner was when i was a kid you know a little yeah. college student and if we we were worried about payroll we discussed it or if we were worried about you know somebody sick and we got to fill in we we took care of it so it was a small microcosm of hospitality from a service perspective but also from an asset perspective this was our you know my family's livelihood and 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 it was a large portion of their savings. So I'll pause to say that there were two summers when I was in hotel school, Steve, where I had secured an apprenticeship my first year in hotel school at the Savoy Group. And so I went to to live in London and I found two roommates or three roommates. And we lived in a little apartment south of the river, south of the Thames in, in, in South Clapham. And I started my first stage at the Savoy Group. Another, parents another let beautiful me, property.
1: Yeah, I was going to yeah, say they, they let you go to. They let
0: me go. You know, even though during the school year, spring break, and Christmas, and weekends, you know, they they really encouraged me. And so I remember being a project coordinator my first summer. And you had Claridges, and you had Connaught, and you had the Barclay, and you had the Ligon Arms, and you had the Savoy, and then you had one property in Paris. And I remember getting these incredible projects, you know, for a young student, you know, and the second summer I I was asked back and I went back and it was, it was just fantastic to have that exposure to meet some of these icons of the industry, like Ronald Jones, the general manager of, of Claridge's, I'll never forget him, or Sebastiani is one of the general managers at the Barclay or Paolo Zago at the Connaught. And, you know, as, a, as, as you build your career, you start to look at these people in your path and your life who really inspire you in their different roles. And again, I think one of the takeaways for me at that time was really pay attention to the people that you really admire in what they're doing and how they're bringing nobility to your industry. And character and personality and respect. In those days, these folks were for me like like rock stars.
1: Yeah, kings of their castles, basically. In that time, especially in the 80s and and early 90s, when you were running around there.
0: Yeah, and the other thing is, is you you really should look for the the greatest hits in every individual you work with and play to their strengths and keep your relationships solid, because you never know when you're going to bump back into them. And even the folks on the Royal Viking line. Even the most today, I'm working with people who have worked for the Royal Viking Line. And some are even journalists who were editors on board, writing the daily uh, what to do ashore. And now they're leading journalists in the industry. So you never know. So again, I'm trying to make sure. Yeah, listeners,
1: he's drilling it into us today. Make sure, especially in hospitality, everyone can move up. And yeah, is, you you grow. Really move everyone out. becomes leaders. But I want to get back to part of this. I want to kind of make sure I'm setting the scene right. So you're in Cornell, you get to go to these ultra luxury again, you're staying in that luxury world in England, you have your own inn that you are a small part owner in with your family. So when you graduate college, do you go work in England? Or are you working for your family? What happens after you graduate?
0: Steve, I was really excited when I graduated. I had received a couple job offers and one was, you know, one was from Four Seasons and they said, Thatcher, we'd really like to, to bring you on board. And I was so excited. I, I was jumping out of my skin, you know, Four Seasons. This was really something special.
1: Premier. Yeah, premiere. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So anyway, I, I was offered a job in Chicago as the front desk, I think it was, and, or Santa Barbara in food and beverage and you can guess what i took i took santa barbara i said mm-hmm. of course and it was the four seasons built more in santa barbara and of course food and beverage i didn't realize also meant stewarding so back i went into the in the kitchen i was assistant chief steward on a very large complex asset a property and was in charge of sanitation and dishwashing and cleanliness and all that. And that's where I started. Yeah. All, all of that. And that was interesting because I, I remember meeting some great people, you know, who are, some are still with four seasons today. And, you know, of course I can tell you, I took me two paychecks to pay my rent (laughs) in Santa Barbara. I drove a moped sort of shamefully to work, but it was, it was worth it. I was very impatient though. I really, I was like, I graduated from school and I'm,
1: you yeah, know, I'm a Cornell you know. graduate.
0: It was a combination of just being ignorant and impatient and naive, I think. Um, if I look back at myself as that young Thatcher, I would have advised myself to be a little more patient at the time and just slow down. It wasn't that I wanted to be in asset management or finance. It was that I was like, ah, oh, I was pretty ambitious, I suppose, too. But I did some volunteer work at the same time. And during that volunteer work period, I met somebody else who actually worked in hospitality and they worked for at the time, a company called Arthur Anderson. And so through my volunteer work, I got another job offer and I was impatient. I was, you know, and it's funny. Now I'm, you know, 55 years old and I, I'm working with four seasons again and I'm so proud and so happy because I get a second chance, you know, and in life, if you get that second chance, grab it. you know this, very, you left
1: four seasons that's hard i'm sure like you're when you talk to your parents or are you just like no this is it they're giving well i left four seasons
0: you know partially because i i was able to i i really liked this fellow that that offered me a job it was at arthur anderson in their hospitality division at the time in downtown la and it was substantially more kind of from a compensation standpoint it was great i could start working on different projects and assets and and I could learn different skills. So I moved from operations into more, you know, feasibility, supply and demand studies, uh, Mm -hmm. operational audits. And I started meeting GMs and and doing these appraisals. And I had some great people I worked with. One of them is still a dear friend. And, 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 you know, you start to build your mentors and friends along the way. And so I took that job and I look back and go, gosh, I'm lucky I can come full circle to Four Seasons. But you know you follow your your gut and at that time i i had worked for a short period of time at four seasons but i took this leap of faith and i i learned a lot but of course sure enough i believe the practice you know one of the things after working as a staffer there i received a phone call and i got another opportunity and i was like gosh what should i do you know i've been here Two years and I, you know, but my one of my bosses had left, and what should I do? And there's nothing more kind of seductive than being wanted or feeling like you're wanted. Yeah, you being know. recruited is a good feeling. Well, and you know, it, it you gotta be careful. Mm-hmm. But at that time I was I was like, well, I'm a learning about consulting, learning about the discipline of feasibility, the financials of hotels, dealing with owners helping them every week, look at how the performance of their hotels was going, working with the asset managers. But I received this offer and I was thinking at the time, you know, should I go to grad school as well? You know, I had all these, I was flooded with how can I best build my capabilities? And this offer was really interesting. It was from a professor who was a Cornell professor who went to Harvard and became a Harvard professor and then he started writing and publishing, and he he wrote some books on service strategy, service guarantees, Malcolm Baldridge quality. And I really admired him. So I joined this company in Boston that was led by this professor and his partner. And what was that called? That was called the TQM Group at the time. And, no, so you, Arthur time Anderson
1: it, and you joined TQM got it
0: yeah and and so tqm was really fun because you know at the time i think the malcolm baldridge quality award was something very coveted and it was a response to the competitiveness of japan mm-hmm. and the automotive industry particularly and the us was trying to build more capability and competency in their own industry service industries so we became experts in helping organizations really execute on their intentions around quality service so that was really interesting and i felt i got a lot of exposure i worked for different industries and then after about three years they decided you know you kind of went to work and i think there was a decision to close the business for reasons that you know i didn't really understand or Mm -hmm. i mean i was just told well you know the company's gonna shut down shift in direction and and
1: and that's so so what do you do What's next? Going back to hotels, or I I... tell
0: you, this is where my good fortune sort of slowed down because you start you start saying, okay, I have an opportunity, and what do I really want to do? And I bought a book. I think you know, I remember I bought a book. It was called Through the Brick Wall or something like that. You know, how to kind of look at what you want in life. And this book kind of framed the things that were important outside of the work itself and the salary. And I remember, gosh, spending hours, days, weeks, months picking companies that I wanted to work for, identifying the people that I wanted needed to contact, calling those people, never getting through. I mean, it was like I felt like I was auditioning in Hollywood and an actor and never getting a part, you know, and it was I remember I was I had I had identified Crystal Cruises as this cruise line that I wanted to work for. And I kept on calling the president's office, never getting through or completely getting ignored. Mm-hmm. And, and one day I got the secretary picked up and I said, look, my name is Thatcher Brown. You don't know me. I really want to speak to a gentleman named Joe Waters. And could you please tell him that I, I think he should hire me? She goes, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. So I'm in my friend's office. I call Crystal Cruises again and they pick up the phone. And who picks it up but this president of Crystal Cruises? Joe Brown. And I said, Jeez, you don't know me, but you really need to hire me. Here's why there's no methodology that exists in the cruise business that's in the hotel business in terms of research and analytics. I think I could be a great analyst. I think I can bring better decision making material. Please meet with me. And he said, Well, I'm I'm traveling for the next six months. And I was like, I'll meet you. Where are you going? (laughs) Yeah. I said, where are you going then? He goes, well, I'm going to Florida next week. Okay. I said, I will pay for my trip to Florida. Give me half an hour. Let me have breakfast with you. Where are you staying? He said, I'm staying at the Ritz Carlton. I'll give you half an hour. I'm there. There. I said, I'll pay for the trip. If I succeed and you think it's of interest to you, the only thing I would ask is that you give me another interview with the rest of your team. I flew down to Florida. I studied, studied, studied everything I could possibly know about the the cruise industry because you know from my time as being Mm -hmm. a waiter Mm -hmm. and i went to breakfast i didn't know this guy i i sat down for half an hour and i pitched being an analyst for him in helping his executive committee drive decisions and that related to achieving the market share he said i want after the after we met he said i want you to speak to somebody else who's here so i spoke to them and then I got an invitation to go to Los Angeles to meet the rest of the team and interview some more. So they offered me a job as an analyst. I was jumping for joy again, and it was worth every, you know, every effort. You know, again, sometimes you just got to invest in yourself, buy that ticket, do your homework, show up, and leave it all on the court.
1: Wait, so how, and- how did that, because now you're, you're call it's not a small company, and you've now got the head of the company on the phone. You convince them you're coming down to see him at the Ritz-Carlton. You have breakfast with him, which I'm sure he was like, who's this crazy guy who keeps calling me? I'm going to give him a shot, right? What was his, uh, what was he like? Was he nice or was he just kind of short with
0: you? Like, All right. I have to say he was a good listener and I think he had done his due diligence a little bit as well, but he was a good listener and he asked me a lot of questions about what, what I knew about the cruise industry. What and And I was very honest about what I didn't know about the cruise industry. And I said, give me a shot. And I said, there's always a probationary period as well. So you have nothing to lose. Yeah, and it's a new role. And he. He was a very committed man to information and and particularly around destinations and data. You know, when I showed up, I suddenly I was encountered with all of these, like this library of resources and data on the cruise industry as he had had it. And I kind of put that together and made it my office. And so my office became kind of a library for the company. And then I had some great projects. You know, I was assigned itinerary planning, I would help out, I would help out in guest satisfaction and quality and and measuring results and so it really we kind of created something together it was really special and i my next job at crystal you know then i was promoted to manager of marketing and then director of marketing and uh that was really great that's amazing
1: right you made your way through uh, that's the stories that i love in careers because up to yeah, hey, you've, you've done a lot of things that a lot of people do but that's the one thing that you chased down a job that didn't exist and created it for yourself And then grew in the company doing it so you get the director of marketing position there what happens after that you end up leaving
0: well you know i think one of the things that i realized in order to be successful in my market research and my work was you need to grow you need to have more ships you need more distribution you know i had learned enough to be dangerous and then i was like well when when is crystal going to go from two ships to three ships to four ships And it became very clear that that wasn't going to happen. And there was no growth because if there's no growth in terms of the capacity and the distribution, you're kind of limited also in your own growth. And so I kind of saw that. And one of the things that happened to me when I was in marketing was, I think I became very kind of naive to say I, I was exposed to sales, but it was always this mystery. How do they get all these people and travel advisors and People that come and sail on these ships and who are these people? You know, mm-hmm. and I started learning about that. And I said, Well, you know, I really haven't sold anything. I've marketed been in marketing and I was kind of also a little critical of sales too. And I was a bit of a hypocrite because I was like, Well, I haven't sold before, but I'm like, Can't you fill the ship? Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. what's your problem? What are you guys doing? And, <laughs> and I said, Well, I gotta learn how to sell. And who's the best seller? You know, who are the best sellers? Who do I want to learn from? And I, at the time, had been exposed to the publishing world because I worked very closely the communications, paid for communications above the line. And I I said, you know what? These people at Condé Nast are ferocious. They are super salespeople. And if you don't succeed, you're out. So I said, well, I could at least see if I was a good salesperson because you get paid well, but if you fail, you're done. You know, you don't meet your target in two, two issues, you're out. Wow. So I put together my pitch to work for Condé Nast Traveler. I remember I was, there was a, I think I went in to see the editor and I had put together this big creative pitch on why, you know, that was a role play. So I was acting like I was already hired, pitching to her, her own product and boy, she gave me great feedback. And um, somebody else got the job at Condé Nast Traveler. And they said, well, you know, there's a magazine called InStyle. Would you want to do that? You know, and I'm like, yeah, I'll try that. So I pitched that. And But I really was an expert in travel and kind of luxury.
1: Right. I'm going to say it's but, completely different.
0: Yeah, it was completely different. So I didn't get that job either. I was still persistent. I said, look, I really you know, I really admire the company. I want to learn and I want to, I think I can contribute. I think I could really accelerate the travel category. And then they came back to me and said, well, our travel category in one of our books is, you know, something that we think you can really contribute to. And we think you can maybe build outside of that. And I said, oh my God, this is great. My third chance, you know? And I said, well, they go, well, you have to meet the uh, person you'd work for. It's in LA. And I said, "Well, what publication is that?" And they said, "Brides Magazine." And you can just see the wah wah wah. I was like, "What?" And then they said, "Actually, it's the top-producing publication in our portfolio because that's where love meets money." And I said, "Okay, like that. Let me learn more about this." And then suddenly, the world of romance travel exploded in my mind. I was like, okay, honeymoons, anniversaries, destination weddings, registry, financial products—you know, all of it—and I said, okay, great. So they hired me to work on the travel category and grow it out of Los Angeles.
1: So did you have a job when you were applying for this, or were you like, all right, Crystal Cruises, I'm done, and you're no, going I had a job. Okay. I have
0: it. I had a job. It's always good to have a job to get a job and yes. you know, not to be miserable either. You got to right. be pretty happy. Sure, you know, yeah, the happier you are scary. in your job, the better off you are. Yeah, this you is a work. big
1: change now. So this is like completely is different. Learning I'm how sure to sell. Your friends are like, what are you doing, Thatcher? You're in the cruise business. How are you going to go work for Bride I mean, magazine? It
0: was, <laughs> it was worse than that. <laughs> Let me tell you, it was like, they're like I think there was a lot of hazing involved because they're like, what are you doing? Yeah,
1: if you and were my friend, I'd here, probably be grilling you too. Be like, yeah, but <laughs> you right. know,
0: sometimes you have to step sideways or outside of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. You got to build your capacity. You got to contribute at the same time. So you're not take, take, taking, but you got to move forward. And sometimes that means moving sideways before you move forward. And there's a lesson here too, because I can tell you, I've done that several times you're investing in yourself and you're giving back at the same time. It's a great combination. If you have a long-term strategy, you know, then it really helps you to have that vision, that end goal. Cause I knew I was going to learn how to sell. I, I showed up, they gave me my goals. They gave me the magazine and they gave me the keys to a car. And I started dialing for dollars, meeting people, having Southern California, Las Vegas, all the wedding business in Las Vegas. You start making contacts in these great places. All the tour operators at that time, you know, like classic vacations. I had Hawaii. Gosh, I had all the way to Fiji. I could do so And you're selling ads, right? I'm selling advertising. I'm selling programming. I'm selling like integrated event-based promotions, kind of activating the readership. And yeah all of that. So it was really fun and it, it really gave me a lot of confidence and it, it, it created a whole network in the luxury lifestyle portfolio of Condé Nast as well. Because down the hall, you had GQ, you had Arc Digest, you had all these lifestyle things that, you know, channels and people that you could work with.
1: So that's you. you're here at Brides Magazine, you're selling, you're learning to sell, what's happening? So you continue I know. On. You're
0: really, you know, Steve, you're a glutton for punishment because we started when I was 16 and I'm 55. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm feeling sorry for your listeners. No, I like it. We're going to get, we're going to hop around, but
1: this is really interesting because, I crash haven't had because, like this.
0: because there's this notion of, you know, coming full circle and life translates at different speeds. And sometimes, you know, you do things in your career and it translates much later in a way that you never thought it would, that benefits you and everybody around you. And, When I was with Brides, I, you know, one of the things that happened, actually, I fell in love when you're coming out of college and you're ambitious, you know that and you know, you also have like a, a whole nother part of your life. And at the time, I was like, pretty obsessed with work, I suppose. But I had met somebody and I fa- had fallen in love and I was thinking, God, is this the right person? Is this the right person? And, you know, I want to make sure I I make the right move and what should I do to really maybe test my love or, you know, how, how can I punish myself more <laughs> because sometimes when things are going well, you, you almost look at yourself and go, is it possible? And at that time too, Brides Magazine had been doing really well. I had kind of got my groove. I knew, you know, I learned all about it. I felt like at at a certain point it was going to be about making money, but you know, as it related to kind of fully expressing myself, I felt like, you know, that was a piece of me that I really felt like I contributed and I got a lot out of it, but it wasn't where I wanted to end up. I I had experienced enough to say, I'm not going to be in publishing like this, but, but you know, it was a fair exchange. And at that time, also, I fell in love. And my sister, who had been living in Madrid for many years, calls me up and says, Thatch, I've bought a sports bar franchise in Madrid. And isn't that exciting? I was thinking to myself, Madrid, okay, maybe <coughs> maybe I should take some time off, go and help my sister and and open this sports bar reconnect with my passion for Spanish and language and see if I'm really in love. Because if I miss my girlfriend at the time a lot, I'll know. So I had to go to my, my girlfriend and say, you know what? I really love you. And I'm, I'm super excited about our relationship. So I have to leave it. But I said, you know, I, there's an opportunity in Spain. <laughs> I'm not going to stay here. And at which point, like, well, then we're breaking up. But actually, that was the first sort of shot across the bow. But it was more like that opened the door for negotiation, at which point, we negotiated a term which was all right, if we're both miserable, We'll make sure we come back together and we'll have a check-in at this time, you know? So it was kind of, we were both a little bit knowing that things were gonna, you know, were really good and maybe we needed to take a quick break, test it and and come back. I know that sounds bizarre, but <laughs> I went to Spain. I left my job at Brides. I went to Spain and I called my girlfriend a month later and said, you got to come over here. This is too much fun. I miss you so much. And she came over and we were back together. And so that was great, but I, I really kind of, I don't know. I felt really entrepreneurial. I felt the energy of starting a business. It was just a happy breather, I suppose. How long were you there? I I was there for a little over a summer. And then I I went to see some of my friends in Arizona because we periodically got together. We combined it with a conference. And I heard somebody speak at the conference. And then I went back to Spain to finish up some work. But when I was at that conference, I saw an individual, I said, I want to work for that guy. Uh, he like that. had made a presentation and the presentation was on uh, Fairmont hotels and resorts. And I said, I, I think I'm going to go back to the States. And that would be somebody I would really want to pursue because I like Fairmont and I like what this gentleman represented. So and did that person work for Fairmont or they were just doing yeah, presentation? Yeah, yeah. And who was that were. person? That was a gentleman named Ed Mace.
1: If I know you well enough, you're making calls to Fairmont to see what's available. Is that what So happens? I went
0: back. I tell you what I did is first I, I flew back to the States. I asked my girlfriend's dad if I could marry her. I proposed and I got engaged. And then I moved to San Francisco because that was where Fairmont was. And there was a family connection on my wife's side. And I wanted to work for Fairmont.
1: So you did but- this before you had a job at Fairmont.
0: <clears throat> Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. I didn't have a job.
1: So you just moved to San Francisco? No. And that's where Fairmont was. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I like it. Okay. So you're there.
0: So I went to Fairmont. No, we don't have a job for you. I'm sorry. I said, well, I got to be useful. And I went to Golden Gate University and I offered to be an adjunct teacher for their hospitality program for graduate students. And I would talk about international marketing. So they hired me for an entire semester to teach a course in international hotel management. You know, it's funny to this day, I I say that's one of the hardest jobs I had because with graduate students, they really save their money and pay for their education. And boy, do they come after class and ask you a lot of questions. And if they don't agree with the grade, they're in your face like the customer. Mm-hmm. So, I really enjoyed that a lot. And I poured myself into that teaching job while I was trying to get a job at Fairmont, and I was persistent. I kept on calling. I kept on saying, "You know, give me, give me a chance. I'll, I'll I'll work for free for three months. I was doing you know anything. And then somebody was hired, and they said, "Well, speak to this person." And after about six months, they hired me. And I had taught, I was teaching, and I finished that episode. And uh, they hired me and I was thrilled. And I went to work for Fairmont and said, you know, I worked for them for seven years.
1: That's amazing. And so I love this about you now, now knowing you for this short time. You go after what you want, you get with Fairmont and you move up. So you're doing good work. So at each of these well, places, you move up.
0: That's really true, Steve. It's, it's important to really connect with the people you work with and focus on outcomes so that you can demonstrate your value.
1: I want to get to where you are now and I want to be cognizant of your time because you're sharing a lot with me. So you grow through Fairmont. You get to be running basically all the marketing for that company, but then you make a, a move to another luxury brand. Yeah. How does that happen?
0: So I I was just a part of a team at Fairmont that helped grow the company. And I was in development for three, almost yeah two and a half years. And again, I felt like, well, I've learned how to sell, but I've sold in publishing, I haven't really exercised any talent in filling a hotel. And what would be the most challenging hotel I could find and situation. But if I do that, I want to run all of marketing for the company. So this would be step again, stepping to the side or even down to move up. So somebody approached me and said, would you be interested in being director of sales and marketing for the Essex house? which is becoming the Jumeirah Essex house and That's Jumeirah in new York city Right. in New York city. So you can't pick a, a more challenging hotel because it's 500 rooms, it's mixed use, it's union, it's heritage, and it's surrounded by the best of the best. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I said, sure, I'll do it for two years. And if I succeed and meet this goal, I want to be promoted to, vice president of brand marketing and strategy for the company. So I went back to New York and I'm a New Yorker. So I had a little Mm -hmm. bit of a understanding of this and I had worked with New York properties at Fairmont. So I did that, that job went through a, you know, $90 million refurbishment opened a restaurant called Southgate who was designed by, I think it was Tony Chi, uh, and, uh, met my goals and was promoted and was moved to Dubai.
1: Wow. So how does that happen? So you have you're married at that time? And is your wife supportive of all this? Because she knows you by this time, right? You're gonna
0: Yeah, she's super supportive. Yeah. I moved to Toronto for Fairmont and we had our we had two kids, really young infants. And then we moved to New York and I, I would say that her family on her father's side, her family was in the in the high high end adventure travel business. They Her dad had been a managing director at Pan Am and actually had started a company called Geographic Expeditions, G-O-X. And she had been exposed to international travel, but also very high end and loved to travel. And so I was fortunate. And so we brought our family to Dubai, at which point it was quite challenging. And so I had five years with Jumeirah, two in New York, three in Dubai. So the ships were starting to come to the Middle East. And I happened to bump into one of the senior executives of a large cruise line. And they came back to me and said, would you be interested in working for us based in Italy? Dubai for, was a great place, but, you know, it has you know its pluses. And I think there was an opportunity for my family to move to Europe. Yep. And so. We moved to Italy, and I took this position for Costa Crociere and I arrived literally the week before that tragic accident of the yeah.
1: Concordia. And that was where it was all over the news, and it sank, yeah. and you arrived the week before or a week after? Yeah, a week
0: before, and I started oh, my first Monday officially, you know, that right after that weekend. There were a lot of lessons learned there, but my family and i lived in italy and in genoa for three years and that three-year period was all about recovery in everybody's job and it was tragic and it was a story of fortitude of incredible uh, resilience and some remarkable individuals who really helped recover that was really interesting and i was promoted then to vice president of product development and onboard revenue and you know, what does that the, mean?
1: What does that job do? Because the cruise line have, is a, bit a foreign portfolio. to me.
0: Yeah, you have a portfolio of vessels and you have the ticket that you buy. But after you purchase the ticket, you go on board or before you go on board, you want to go on shore excursions. You want to eat it. You want to eat in the restaurants. You want to drink packages. spa treatments. Yeah. And, you know, it's about it's millions and millions of biz- dollars of business if you have a big and so. You can imagine if you sell one more massage and you have a million passengers, it, it adds up. So I was responsible for that, and I studied Italian, and I learned the, you know, the culture. And <laughs> it was made some great friends and launched some new ships, and was very grateful. And I, I was asked to be in charge of the foundation, which was a real privilege that focused on the environmental impact and how how we can do a better job at our. You know, environmental and social impact as a cruise line. I I had three years there and we were kind of in recovery mode and we had sort of started really to turn the corner. And then there was the idea of me going and actually working for my father-in-law's company. And as I was considering that, I received a phone call from somebody anonymously saying there's, there's an opportunity. And I think, you know, certainly that person probably, you know, absolutely was got a reference From somebody who was kind enough to give it to me, probably, and said, Would you like to go to Hong Kong and start a cruise line for us? And I I was like, Well, I'm actually going to maybe leave and work for my family. And Italy was also cumbersome because structurally it was hard from a tax perspective. It was difficult at that time. In any case, it was really interesting because I was thinking of going in one route and I ended up, and so I. I asked my father-in-law, and he said, you know, I would really go to Hong Kong because that's once in a life opportunity.
1: Yeah, and you become president of a giant corporate yeah. group of Genting, right? Is that how I <laughs> it, right? Yeah, it was,
0: dream, it was Dream Cruises. You know, it's funny, you get excited about these ideas, and then you show up and you're like, okay, where's my team? And, you, you know, you have one accountant, one, you know... <laughs> In turn, and that was really a fun project, but I took it and launching, building, building ships and and launching them is not for the faint of heart. And it's extremely complex and particularly in a foreign country, like, like Asia and China, you know, Mm -hmm. specifically China. And I, I said, okay, I'm going to do this. You know, I built a great team. We started with literally three, four people. We built the division hired the people. I had some great, great people I worked with and, and launching a cruise line in Asia was really spectacular and learning the destinations and the culture. And that's where I really started to translate a lot of my experience at, you know, in terms of my interest in cross cultures. I managed in, majored in international management in hotel school, and suddenly a lot of these things started to come alive. And if anybody wants to read a really good book on, on culture and the, and how to sort of effectively manage across cultures, there's a book by Aaron Meyer, who is an instructor, or professor at INSEAD. And this book really manifested a lot of what I learned in terms of persuasion and, and the different aspects of working in Europe and working in Asia and working in the Middle East and how, you know, I was building some capacity for really understanding how to bring the best out of people from different cultures and understanding how I could be more effective as a leader. And so there was a huge amount of maturing that happened during that job in Hong Kong. Do
1: you look back on it fondly or was it just really challenging?
0: I, I look back on it fondly because what was accomplished by you know, in such a short period of time in terms of building these billion dollar ships, launching them in Asia and creating itineraries and and experiences that were really relevant to the diversity of Asia, which is absolutely different depending on your source markets, you know, whether you're going to, you know, to Singapore or Indonesia or Philippines and your, or, or mainland China, or you have a lot, a lot of nuances and, you you really understand those nuances better and how little you know and how important it is to see the kind of universal picture of your business and the strategy versus sometimes on the Western world we're very kind of pragmatic and linear and here you know it was it was the antithesis of what I had experienced in the Western world. And I'm very I'm very nostalgic about it and I really got close, you know, I hired everybody. I interviewed everybody. I built a culture with the help of my, you know, leadership team. And, and, you know, I had some I had good sponsorship. The end result of that cruise line is a little tragic because of things that are out of my control, but nonetheless, I wouldn't change a thing. And so what happens? It comes to an end. Well, I had left. I think the protest had started in in Hong Kong. There was, you know, first, my my, uh, desire to be closer to my family was really burning. We had launched three ships. It was very clear that the role of an American leader, you know, was going to be more and more challenging, perhaps, as it related to just the geopolitical situation. At that time, frankly, Thought I would take some time off, and my girls had were growing up, and they were, One got into college, and I kind of wanted to be there for their first day and yeah. going to college. And so, I after four years, I I didn't see the horizon as being you know just the stability of that environment as being very positive. And I came back to the states, and I just simply took some time off and that was a great pause because a lot of what i did started to manifest in in as you get older you decide what's important to you who are the personalities and people you've worked for that really you respect or emulate and what you know what's going to be your next move and i also had real time to connect with my family my you know at the time my dad wasn't very very strong and doing well and actually COVID then happened Mm-hmm. right after I left in 2019. And so it was a very good time to come back because I was able to be with my family and care for the my parents who were my sponsors, you know, and also be with my kids and my, my wife. And it just, it was important because you, you, sometimes you lose touch with a lot of that when you've worked abroad almost 14 yeah. years, 13 and a half years. Mm-hmm. So that pause Allowed me to actually pivot. I was, I had wanted to hire a replacement for my position. I found some people, I talked to them, I introduced them. And interestingly enough, one of them kind of reversed the role on me ultimately and came back to me and said, Well, would you work with me on this project later on? And so I had been in the States, I had taken time off, and there was an opportunity that popped up. And this opportunity was to help start another. Luxury cruise line, and I was excited about it, and so it was with somebody I I, I knew, and
1: yeah, it's important. I especially uh, as you get older, right? You know the people you're working with.
0: Definitely more and more important as you get older, and of course. So I went and this was in G- the, it was to go to Geneva and, and be part of sort of the, the organizing team that was being built by a really some great experts in the industry to, to launch a, you know, sort of a, a luxury cruise line. And so. what was the name of that line? That, that line was called Explora. And again, it, it you know, it's a, it was amazing because when you're creating and you're you're starting from scratch again and i had some experience now as you know right it you know it it becomes a little more fun because you know what's going on you know what you're doing it's you know who to call
1: like hey i need this
0: well and you 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 realize you you kind of take for granted how much you know until then you kind of have to come back to it and how much easier it is when it's not in a difficult language like Cantonese or Mandarin right. you know it can be you know Italian and French are much more appealing in terms of my own capabilities but that that experience was great except for the fact except for the fact that COVID just blanketed us
1: and we started in March 2020 right when
0: everything right. was happening. and I put my best for, foot forward and 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 we built a great team. I recruited some great people who were still there. And unfortunately, at that time, my father's situation was, was worse. And he, you know, I was kind of stuck in Geneva. And, you know, go, going back and forth was very... very Very difficult, difficult. And he, he had passed while I was in Geneva. And, you know, so the story goes, and luckily I had some time with him before I went to Geneva, but it got worse and he passed. And then of course your mom becomes a widow and nobody ever trains you for these things, by the way, you know, you go to school for hotel and you go to, but you're always a son and you're never really trained for what it means when these things happen you see it happen to other people and then it happens to you. And then you're like, okay, what do I do? And for me, it's, you know, as I, as you probably felt throughout this interview, if there's a family issue, I, I drop you're there. It. Yeah. And in this case, I felt like the strength of what I had done was I hired a really good group of people. So, and, and I would acknowledge actually, you know, the leadership that I worked with for allowing me to do that. So I, I made a hard decision. One of the hardest things that one can do in a career is leave something. And, and, you know, in a positive way, when you have this crisis and it's kind of like, where's the positive? No, I know I can't stay. Mm -hmm. I have to go home and you know, well, and there's so much uncertainty. And I was able to, to make that decision. It was very hard. And then I went home to, to take care of, of family. And it was the second time I had done that, you know, first from Hong Kong. I wanted to be with family. And sure enough, things happened. And this is coming back. And Steve, th- again, there's nothing more important. And in one's career, it's just for me now, it's so easy to make these decisions. And I think everybody has their tipping points. And you say, you know, I'm not going to, I work at a hotel, I'm not going to work. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it's killing me. Or whatever that reality is for whoever you are, you have to have your boundaries. And it was very clear to me that I needed to come back home. So you take yeah. some,
1: could take a good chunk of time off now after that, right?
0: So I took a good chunk of time because I needed to. There was a lot of recovery, a lot of investment in, in family and you know you start paying attention to things that maybe you didn't pay attention to as much in the beginning gracefully time goes by and other opportunities come up and this opportunity that came up with four seasons was a little bit of a bluebird because as yeah, i was I'm, kind of I'm getting to hear
1: this so you're spending the time off you're kind of figuring out what you want to do
0: i wasn't even figuring out what i wanted to do i was just uh,
1: enjoying family spending exactly time i mean
0: I, this this opportunity with the joint venture that was being formed to launch four seasons yachts was irresistible and the people are, were tremendously interesting and, and experienced and and just human and great you know a, a great leader great people and i was like okay and suddenly i could go full circle again and after I graduated from, you know, hotel school and got my first job, here I am looking at an opportunity at Four Seasons Yachts. And what a spectacular project. I mean, you're like, wow, this is a bluebird that just flew into the window and started to sing. And you know it when you see it. Every project has its challenge. I mean, we started off by kind of giggling at my title because it's all this sort of mashup of mm-hmm. a joint bench. The reality is I wake up every day saying, what can I do to make this project Four Seasons Yachts succeed? And I am part of this project Four Seasons Yachts as a way to, you know, create something phenomenal for the guest and, you know, the traveler who wants wants to experience that Four Seasons exceptional, what's exceptional is the rule for them. And also then start to apply my expertise in the industry so that the the elements of the hotel industry shoreside can translate and manifest brilliantly at sea. And that's a that's an art because it's a very different, you know, there are some things that are similar, but there are many things that are different. And I feel like I can I can bring a lot of passion and experience to that with a great team under great leadership. I love hearing it. And so you were hired September
1: of 2022 we're recording this december 2022 when do you launch officially
0: yeah i think i started in it's only been a couple of months right it's been a it's been a few months but i i have to say we'll launch in 2025 in november you know it's funny i don't know where the time goes steve when i hear these dates i'm like oh my god you know
1: yeah (laughs) we've gone your whole life from the 80s to now so you're going to be launching in three years is the goal
0: yeah three years will be what happens and uh yeah you know there's no you know you get a ship it's delivered there's no you know it's delivered on that date, and you know you there's nothing more exciting than when you get a ship and you breathe life into it with the culture that particularly this the four seasons culture which is so people-centric and i remember the golden rule when i first had my orientation in Santa Barbara, at the four seas of Santa Barbara, it hasn't changed in IOTA, you know, mm-hmm. you treat people the way you want to be treated. They'll treat you the same. And, and So is the ship ordered? Is it ready to go? Yeah, it's being designed now and it's, you know, I'll go to Europe next week for a design meeting and the beat goes on and it's very swift. So it's a great opportunity. and as I look now at the people we're hiring and the young you know <laughs> the next generation of leaders, the ability to kind of follow up and give back to to their opportunities is really a gift for me and I, I cherish that. This has been a noble pursuit of serving other people like you have and I do in our in our business and the way we can do it by making them better off, than when they were when they first met us. I think that's that's a gift that we can offer. And, you you know, I want to say thank you for letting me tell my story, because even when I hear myself talk, besides being somewhat embarrassed, I think sometimes you don't realize how much you've done and, and, and how much there is to do still and how you can build on that. And how do you reinvent yourself so that you're constantly being accretive to the people around you and yourself? So
1: I think this is a great segue into my last question. Because we could, like you said, a part two, all about Four Seasons Yachts. And maybe when it launches, I can be there with you. Hopefully we continue uh, building a friendship from here. So we talk about this with a lot of guests, but you truly have been all over the world. You've seen all different kinds of companies and not just in hospitality, but let's say young Thatcher, 18 years old on his gap year, was starting on your Four Seasons Yacht team this year. So young yeah. Thatcher's on your team. He's one of your team members. What advice would you give him as he's starting out?
0: One of the most important things that I've learned is, is that I was very kind of restless and impatient when I was younger. And I, I would have encouraged myself to, to maybe slow down and really be present to opportunities that I overlooked because I was so, I had such, I put such pressure on myself to excel and meet this standard that was really unrealistic and, and it it kind of distracted me from some of the beautiful interruptions that could have occurred when I was younger. I don't know if that, that's a little abstract, but if you can maybe go into things really trying to be present to how you can how you can contribute and to be patient about interpreting and, and listen carefully to the situation and not reading or judging it too quickly that you can come out of that with a with a much richer experience. And I feel like at times I was very impatient. And while it allowed me to move and still gain momentum, there are times when I scratch my head and I say, you know, if I had been a little bit more quieter inside, how could have that experience been a little richer so that I could have... Mm-hmm given more of Thatcher to the situation that, that it deserved also been able to receive more of that. I would also argue that one of the things that that helped me was to be very culturally sensitive and to use my ears more than, more than my mouth, because there are two of them. Yeah, I think true. I would have. Acknowledged the humility that I brought to a lot of these cultural experiences because. What embarrasses me the most sometimes is when I see the kind of more of the arrogance and the pompousness of sort of the dark side sometimes of of the industry that that can really get in the way of us collectively improving ourselves. And I'm as a leader, I'm very very committed to to that type of humi- humility and role modeling, because I think we always have so much to learn. And I think there's so much diversity now in, in our world that needs, we need to pay attention to carefully to, to actually play to its strength as much as we can. I would have been also more conscious about tuning up on the environment. One of the things that I find myself now learning a lot about is... How we as an industry can really improve our footprint, uh, our carbon footprint. And I think I could have been a little bit more prepared. I think I was culturally prepared for a lot of the diversity, but the, the environmental requirements now of our roles as leaders really interest me. And I think I could have probably started a little earlier.
1: I think those are all listen, great tips for everyone listening, especially the part about sustainability because that's special to me, especially living here in Miami. You see it happening around you of how the world is changing quickly with water rising and and all those things so i'm happy to hear you say that and we've had a lot of people on the podcast from six senses hotels and one hotels and they're all working that way too so i'm happy to hear that you have that same mindset yeah
0: thank you well thanks for the opportunity
1: yeah that's right i appreciate you being on the show you gave us the full journey which i appreciate and especially all the time you spent with us today it means a lot to me this podcast is brought to you by biscayne coffee Biscayne Coffee was founded with a giving spirit and a big idea to enjoy delicious coffee roasted in Miami while helping save Biscayne Bay and the animals that live there. As a former food and beverage director, I can assure you these are some of the best quality beans on the planet. 10% of every coffee sold is donated to nonprofits to help preserve Biscayne Bay for all to enjoy. Visit BiscayneCoffee.com today and use promo code MENTOR at checkout to save 10% on your first order drink good coffee, and create a good outcome.